This week on Writers, Inc. There are things you can do in a novel that you can't do in a, in a film and, and vice versa. So we had to figure out how to how to turn the, the propulsive, vivid, um, immersive experience you get in a movie uh, that people knew so well into uh, the same kind of emotional, visceral experience on the page. And uh, that was uh, challenging, but, uh, but amazing as well. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and indie powerhouses Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories. All have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's Inc. So, uh, JD, what's your strategy now with, uh, with your fourth monkey book when it comes to keywords? Can you talk about it? No, this is, we were talking about this before we started recording. So I've got Google alerts kind of set up for, for everything related to my career. And you know, like one of them is for fourth monkey. And like probably about three, four months ago, I started seeing stuff creep in because of monkey pox and my Google alerts, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and so like I, we were joking, like maybe I should take monkey pox and throw it in my keywords over on Amazon <laughs> to, to see what happens. And, you know, like we were joking, but I'm like, you know, maybe that's worth a shot just to see what it does. I'm, I'm really not sure. I'm honestly, I'm trying to get away from Facebook advertising. Um, like I, I look at it once a week and like every week it's just, it's trickling down just a little bit, you know, a little bit. I'm like, I'm, I'm getting less bang for my buck and you know, like it, it doesn't, you know, it's not that impactful when you look at it week for week, but like I just compared it to a year ago, um, the same money spent in the results and like, that's actually a pretty staggering difference. And you know, so I'm trying to explore that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I'm looking at advertising. Do you think that is, well, I'm, I'm just, there's no simple explanation for it, but do you think the, the Apple privacy change um, is what sort of started uh, the Facebook ads into like a downward spiral? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, because you just, you can't target anything anymore. One of the other things that I'm noticing is, as I go in, you know, when you, when you create a Facebook ad, you, you just key in whatever targets you want to hit. So I want to, you know, target people that read this or watch this or like this, that kind of thing. Um, those target groups are shrinking and they're going away. You know, like every time I open up an ad, like I get an error message now saying that, you know, this particular category that I've got in my target is no longer available and it, it forces me to delete it. Um, you know, so like my overall group is just it's shrinking and getting smaller. And I know it's because they're just not able to monitor what they, you know, what they could be for. Um, you know, like I'm not a fan of big brother stuff, but at, at the same time, like I personally don't mind targeted advertising. If, if somebody's going to throw ads in front of me, I'd rather it be something that I'm actually interested in buying instead of some random thing, you know, which is essentially what we had, you know, on, you know, before the internet existed. If you think about regular television advertising, everybody saw the same ad, you know, whether you were planning on taking a vacation to Barbados or not, you know, we all watch that same commercial. Um, now those same commercials are out there, but they're targeting each of us for, you know, specifically what it is we're looking for. So I, I don't see that necessarily as a bad thing. Um, but then I also flash over to Minority Report and Tom Cruise running down the hallway and every ad, you know, smacking him in the face with, with something that, you know, ties to him. So there's a, there's a line there. Um, as an advertiser, I, I want to take advantage of it. As a consumer, I, you know, I'm still a little scared. Yeah, now they're trying to sell you homes in Barbados, not just get you to go on vacation. <laughs> um, <clears throat> where all are you currently running advertisements? Right now, I've got Facebook uh, ads running. I've got Amazon ads, uh, TikTok, and I've got commercials running on Hulu. Have do you have you messed with BookBub ads? Uh, like their targeted ads, not their featured deal thing, but like. I, I did years ago. I, I, I probably should revisit it because I, I did it with like my first couple of books before I really knew what I was doing. Um, and my general impression was unless your book was priced fairly low, it, it wasn't worthwhile. And that like makes my, sense. Yeah. My biggest hurdle when it comes to all this is a lot of my titles are traditionally published. So on my yeah. indie published stuff, I, I still price like the traditional guys. So all my books are around 10 bucks a pop, yeah. um, you know, cause I'm able to take advantage of that. But I think as a book bub deal, I, I don't know that I would even buy it, you know, if it came in on the book bub email. Yeah, that makes that that makes a lot of sense because I I definitely think over there I've never run ads there, which is why I'm curious. But I definitely think that um, you do have to have lower price books for them to work. So I have a couple of things I think I might try over there. 
Yeah, I, I saw something the other day where they were interviewing um, younger kids and like teenagers, some of them don't even know what Facebook is, you yeah. know, which is, you know, wow. like it's just, it's being aged out. Um, you know, and I personally, like, I don't use Facebook other than the, the advertising. I don't go on there and scroll. Like, you know, I think my, my high school reunion was like the last time I actually looked at it just because there was a group for that. Um, you know, and that was, that was years back. But like, other than that, like, I don't, I don't use it anymore. Um, I know a lot of people have moved on to the other services. Um, you know, I, I don't know where people are, are spending their time online these days, but you know, I, I need to spend some time and, and research it because there's, there's somewhere, um, there's always a way to target them. You know, so if Facebook is out, there's, there's probably three other platforms that are in. We just have to find them. TikTok. TikTok. I'd like to ask you guys this because I think it's really relevant. Uh, so I started watching this new show called Echoes on Netflix. Um, it's about these uh, twins. Um, and it's, it's like a domestic thriller. It's a little spin on a domestic thriller. And, uh, and I was pretty much like I was into it. Like it was it's really interesting. I'm almost done with the series and I, I want to finish it. But here's what happened. It was intellectually demanding. <laughs> Like I really had to pay attention. I really had to think, and and I'm and like now I'm I'm like torn. Like, is that the experience we want to create for our readers or our viewers? Like, where's the balance between an interesting plot versus so intellectually demanding people just tune out or they give up? What are your thoughts on that? Um, you know, honestly, like I'm, I've been approaching Netflix and these other streaming services very similar to the way that I approach books. You know, like there's just not enough time in the world, you know, in, in your life to, you know, to, to go through something you don't necessarily enjoy. Um, you know, years back, if I started a book, I finished that book, whether I liked it or not. And, and watching television was the same kind of thing. And I've, I've got a, a simple note document of stuff to watch. You know, like anytime somebody tells me, hey, you should check out this or I, I read an article about it or whatever, I drop it in there. So when I'm, you know, finished something and I'm, I'm looking for something new, I can hit that document. Um, and Echoes is on there. Um, and I'm finding more and more now that I'll start a show, get halfway through, you know, the first episode and go, you know, like, I just don't want to hang with this for the, you know, for eight episodes or eight hours or even another 40 minutes. And I just, you know, delete it from my simple note document and move on. Do you, th I wonder, do you think Jay, that it has anything to do with the fact that like you're steeped in this all day long and like coming up with your own plots and stuff. And then just at the end of the day, when you're ready to wind down, watching something that's like very mentally demanding like that is just kind of overload. Cause I can tell you with me, like, you know, I don't watch a ton of shows. I mean, as you guys know, and I talk about like most of my wind down time is done playing games and with, but like the games I play have big stories and stuff involved. Um, but, but I have been watching a little more TV lately, but I find myself going to stuff I've already seen and rewatching it as opposed to like watching something new that I feel like I really have to focus on. But I, I wonder, I wonder if the original question I asked you, you think that has something to do with it? I think that's definitely part of it. The flip side to that is, you know, I'm really studying sort of mainstream market appeal right now. Like I have a, I have a project I'm, I'm sort of toying with. And, and so I'm really paying attention to specifically like mainstream thrillers. And so as I'm watching this and I'm like, and I'm really concentrating and I'm like, I'm not sure if I'm enjoying it or not. Like, is this fun? I, I, I don't know. And so I did something I rarely do. I went to IMDB and I started reading the reviews and people were just slamming it. Like, confusing, don't get it. And, and so that's where I was like, okay, well maybe like, and I know I do this a lot, like maybe oftentimes when we're writing towards a mainstream market, we try to overcomplicate things to, to make us feel like we're more of an artist, you know, as opposed to just like telling a, a straight story, you know, an interesting story versus a complex story. I have a great comparison. It's like, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like, listen to ACDC versus listening to dream theater. Like, you know, like uh, so many musicians like love dream theater because they just are like, but it can They're get all like proggy real, and math. And yeah. Stuff, and it's right? all in it. But sometimes it's just like, I don't want to listen to that. That's not, it's not catchy, you know? Well, I, I think a lot of it comes down to what do you, you know, what your, what is your reason for watching whatever it is you're watching? Like, are you yeah. there to relax at this particular moment? Are you there to get ideas? Can I, I watch a lot of stuff because I want to see something new. You know, like I've, I'm at the point now where I, I felt, I feel like I've read every plot, you know, like every twist I've seen before, um, you know, whether it's in, in, in books or in movies, you know, like everything just feels very repetitive to me. And I, you know, I, I remember when these things were fresh, you know, like the first time I saw this, the first time I saw that, I'm like, holy cow, that was awesome. Um, but but now I've seen that same twist over and over and over again. And like, 
that takes a lot of it away from, from me. Um, I know when I want to sit down and just watch something and just relaxing, I do exactly what Zach said. I tend to hit the back catalog. Um, I just watched uh, an old movie with Al Pacino and uh, Matthew McConaughey called uh, Two for the Show, I think it was, um, about gambling. Um, you know, it's from like 2005 or something. Um, and it's mainly because I watched, you know, we're going to talk about Heat in a little bit, but I, I went back and watched Heat again um, with the, the book coming out. I wanted to watch the movie before I read the new book, um, you know, which was fantastic. And, you know, it tends to remind me of particular characters that I haven't or, you know, actors that I haven't seen in a while. And then I go down this this rabbit hole. So, you know, right now it's Matthew McConaughey and Al Pacino. Um, you know, I, I've, I've made a note. I want to watch the Alien movies again. I haven't seen those in forever. And I, have you seen Prey? Either of I you watched I, it's 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 good. Yeah, it, it's yeah. good. Um, I mean, it's, it's basically a, a new take on the predator thing, um, but set with Native Americans. And, you know, like that to me was refreshing. Like I would have never gone there. My, my writer brain would have never said, hey, let's put these two things together. And, and to me, that's why it works so well. Yeah. Um, you know, if you go to the obvious choice, you know, let's put predator in a city. Let's, you know, do something that you know has worked before. Let's just tweak it just a little bit, you know, to try and bring in a new audience, but, you know, not mess with that magic formula too much. Um, that's where it gets old for me. Um, but at the same time, you know, like if I want to just relax, like, like this, this may sound silly, but I'll sit back and watch like a John Wick movie, you know, mainly oh, because, that, yeah. yeah, you know, like it's total action, you know, adrenaline rush from start to finish, but like, there's no real brain power involved in that's watching That's a turn that. your brain off movie. Pop yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I guess that's kind of what Jay's getting at. Like, you don't yeah. want to sit down and watch something where you've got to have a notepad sitting next to you to try and figure out what's going right. on. Right. You got to keep score. Right. And I, I get it. Like we're, we're in a very small segment of the population who is studying the story while trying to enjoy it, whether we can help it or not, we do that. I'm just thinking like for the masses, for like your, your Joe six pack or your Jane six pack, uh, who sits down to like watch a movie. Like I think of something like the sixth sense, which was a, an incredible twist and, and, uh, at the time, but it wasn't complex. It was very straightforward, you know? And I just wonder if like the very complex storytelling is, is necessary or is that what people really want? Like when, how, cause how many people are like you guys said, like at the end of a long day, they just want to sit down and relax and enjoy something. Do they want to have to figure out the puzzle? Like, you know, what percentage of people want to figure, want to, want to solve the puzzle versus just enjoy the experience? Well, I think it comes down to, um, we've talked about TJ Fallen or TJ Newman's uh, book Fallen. Uh, if you get a chance, just go out on Amazon, just read the, the blurb for that, you know, because it's, it's extremely short. It, it's something like, you know, a, a, your plane just took off from for here to here. Um, your pilot just received a text message saying that his family has been kidnapped and they're going to all die unless he crashes the plane. Enjoy your flight. Like it's like 100 words long, um, but it's such a simple idea. Um, you know, we talked about Riley Sager, you know, a week or two ago too, you know, like his latest book is, um, basically rear window on a lake. You know, the fact that you can describe it so simply, like that's why it worked. That's why rear window worked. It was a very simple plot. Um, I think the simpler it is, the more people it's going to resonate with, it's going to appeal to. And, and that's where the mass market really is. And when you start digging into, you know, adding these little complex twists here and there, you can get away with some and, you know, to a large extent, that's a good idea, but there's, there's definitely a line you can cross there where you go into territory where only certain people are going to understand it or enjoy it. And, you know, you, you don't want to be there. Yeah. I think too, I think too, what JD said about like why you're watching it is, is, is really key. I mean, if you, you know, not to repeat everything we just said, but like, if you're watching it just to watch it, then that's one thing. But if it's something that, you know, you're actually trying to study it, I almost want, and, and you do know, like doing that at the end of the day affects you. I wonder if it's worth it for you to like, try to bake that into your work hours or something. Cause technically it is work at that point, you know? And yeah. Know. Yeah. yeah. But you know, you know what though? Like it, when you write books or you tell stories, I, I don't think there's a way to turn that off. You know, like yeah, every time that's I, true. Yeah. you know, like I just, I just read a screenplay that's got nothing to do with anything that I wrote. And you know, it's 96 pages long. I was on page 95 trying to figure out how they were going to end it. And I was also trying to figure out how I would end it. You know, like, what would I yeah. do at this point? Like my brain is trying to, to do that. And like, I don't think you can ever turn that off if you're, you know, if you're geared towards telling stories. So. I, I think I'm talking more about just like all the willpower we use throughout the day, like, especially as creatives, like doing all this stuff. And, um, you know, how like watching something like that after you've already done all that, you know, not that I'm giving Jay an excuse to watch TV instead of write, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, at the same time, it is kind of like, I don't know. So go, go back to watching SpongeBob and you'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I just had, I, like I, said, I just had this thought, you know, yeah. I'm curious what you guys thought about it. So, well, anything else before we take care of some business? 
Let's do it then. Uh, shout out to Koba Writing Life that empowers you, the author, to take your self-publishing career into your own hands. As always with Koba Writing Life, you get to set your price, you keep all your rights, and you don't have to be exclusive anywhere. They have monthly promotional opportunities, and you can get all that at kobawritinglife.com or check out the link in the show notes. JD, who do we got joining us this week? Uh, this is going to be a fun one. We've got Meg Gardner on. Um, she's the best-selling author of 16 novels, um, a staple in our house. Every time a new book comes out, I'm always you know, first in line to get that. Um, her latest is a collaboration with director Michael Mann called Heat 2, uh, which is a sequel to the 1995 movie, which starred Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, and Val Kilmer. Uh, the book uh, debuted last week at number one on the New York Times list. From what I'm hearing, it's going to still be number one this week, so it's holding strong. Um, here she is, Meg Gardner. I feel as though I uh, I slipped a bit of my research because uh, I didn't ask you in our first conversation about your dark industrial metal playlists. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, when I was writing my novel, The Dark Corners of the Night, I decided, as I usually do, that I needed a playlist uh, to, to accompany my hours at the keyboard. And was searching for something that would fit uh, the vibe of uh, of the 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 bad guy in the book. And I stumbled upon this wonderful, wonderful playlist online called Dark Industrial Metal, which <laughs> sounded like something that would uh, send suburban parents into the the shivers. And uh, it's really wonderful. It's exciting music. It's very uh, emotional and melodic with you know, powerful lyrics. It was perfect for writing, but uh, but thank you for noticing. That was <laughs> I, I, there was no way I was going to miss that one. Uh, <laughs> no, had you, had you been a fan of, of like, like Nine Inch Nails back in the day? Is that how you discovered industrial music? Because it's not sort of like a random thing people would search for. I, I started with the with the play with the with every novel I I try to build up a, a playlist and a, a mood for the writing. Sometimes the the songs end up in the in the work. You, there's you know the characters listen to them, and for the dark corners of the night, which is set in Los Angeles, sunny spot, but uh, uh, it's got to have the story had a, a a dark undertone. So I needed something that sounded. Uh, powerful and a bit gritty. And where are you going to go? But Nine Inch Nails to, <laughs> to start with that playlist. Love it. Awesome. Well, uh, we're here not to necessarily talk about Nine Inch Nails, although I could spend hours on that. Uh, I would love uh, to hear about this wonderful new collaboration you've got out. Uh, tell us about it. My brand new novel out now in the US and in uh, the UK, Ireland, Australia, elsewhere is Heat Two, which I have uh, co-written with Michael Mann. It is the prequel and sequel to the movie Heat, which Michael wrote and directed and has become a classic uh, crime film uh, from 1995. And Michael wanted to expand the world of the story beyond, uh, beyond the movie, which takes place in a splinter of time. And we wrote uh, the world of these iconic characters, Neil McCauley, the Highline bank robber, uh, Vincent Hanna, the relentless homicide detective who pursues him. And we explored uh, their uh, their lives, the, the drama, the scores they take, the felons that they hunt uh, before. And, uh, and we go with the survivors into new adventures after the movie. It's full of action. It's full of drama. And it was an amazing experience. And I am so far over the moon that uh, I am out of the solar system right now because it just debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> that is fantastic. Uh, I don't even, I don't mean, I don't even know where to start. I, I guess we got to start at the beginning, right? Like how does this come on your radar? How do you get involved with this? Uh, Michael, Mr. Mann and I have the same literary agent uh, to whom Michael had talked about wanting to return to the to the universe of heat and uh, to uh, to blow it out into uh, in both before and after. And he wanted to do it as a novel. And 
Michael is an extraordinarily accomplished writer. Uh, if you've seen any of his movies, he's written so many of them that are just stunning. Um, writing a novel is a different thing than writing a screenplay. So he, and he's also a, a, an experienced collaborator. So he was talking about uh, working with a writer who has experience writing stories as novels, knows how to turn uh, turn a tale into a into a work that's uh, 400 pages long, 100,000 words. And he read my novel, Unsub, and uh, wanted to talk. So we talked a lot about uh, my love for the, the film, uh, my, my love for all of his works, my admiration, and my, my hope that I could help him realize his ambitions for a novel that expanded on something that had become so iconic and uh, he had the story he had he'd been thinking about this for for years about uh, where the characters came from how they became who they are uh, violently sometimes and uh, where they where they could go uh, the survivors at least so uh, we we talked out the story we uh, we sent outlines back and forth and uh, then we started writing. And uh, the project started two years ago and uh, was finally out uh, just now in August 2022. Wow. Uh, I mean, in all fairness, this would be, you know, this might be a hard question for you to answer. But at any point, did you, did you sort of raise the question of like, why a book? Like, you know, why, why a book after a, a, like you said, a modern crime classic film? No, <laughs> I thought it was a fantastic idea. <laughs> That's a great answer. <laughs> and it's uh, it, it's it's Michael Mann. Uh, if he wants to adapt uh, this into a, a film, I see nothing that could possibly stop him. Uh, but uh, I totally love the idea of expanding the world of the story first into a novel. There are, there are things you can do in a novel that, um, that you can't do in a, in a film and, and vice versa. So we had to figure out how to, how to turn the, the propulsive, vivid, um, immersive experience you get in a movie uh, that people knew so well into uh, the same kind of emotional, visceral experience on the page. And uh, that was uh, challenging, but uh, but amazing as well. So I was I was uh, a bit daunted at first with the thought of taking on a big project like this, but it was uh, it was an adventure. It was uh, it was wonderful. Yeah, uh, I know that. Um... You know, you, you obviously there's some some things you you can't discuss, but as much as you're comfortable sharing, what did the what did the day to day process look like when you were in sort of the the thick of the drafting phase? Oh, sure. We uh, we started out talking on the phone, and this was right in the depths of COVID when we we started working together, so we couldn't actually get together in the same room. Uh, we we talked over the phone. We worked via email thing back and forth ideas, short outlines, notes to each other, uh, getting an overall sense of the, the direction of the story, how we would structure the book because it's a prequel and a sequel and uh, the timelines intertwine. Uh, it's not purely chronological. It, uh, it starts out the day after the film ends with uh, the last survivor of the bank robbery crew, uh, Chris Chihurlis, who has survived this war in the downtown streets of Los Angeles after the heist uh, goes wrong, with him uh, desperate to escape the city. He's nearly dead from a gunshot wound. Uh, he knows that uh, if he's going to survive, he's going to have to leave his family behind. Otherwise, they will get caught up in all of this as well. Uh, he's being pursued by Vincent Hanna, the cop played by Robert uh, by Al Pacino in the film, who uh, who lost uh, lost his partner in the in the in the gunfight and uh, is now desperate to capture or kill Chris before he can uh, ghost out of the city. 
And then it jumps back to Chicago uh, several years before where Hannah is a detective there. And uh, Neil and his uh, Neil McCauley, played by Robert De Niro and his crew, are uh, in town to take down a tunnel score at a savings and loan. It uh, it goes ahead to uh, to South America after Chris has managed to uh, slip across the border. And it, it jumps back and forth so that the the storylines parallel each other, uh, intertwine and eventually collide uh, in Los Angeles, where everybody comes together again toward the end of the novel. And I'm trying desperately not to give away spoilers, <laughs> <Right>. but <laughs> there is a ton of action. There are the characters that uh, the, the, the audience loved from the film who come back. We see them younger, uh, sometimes more volatile, uh, closer to to being a very young man. We see them later on uh, after they've uh, have been battle scarred and uh, are uh, are becoming more mature. Some way that doesn't mean they're changing their lives. They're still either hunting uh, felons or they are felons hunting scores. Uh, but uh, it was um, it's uh, it, it, Michael and I started with just kind of testing, testing the water, seeing how we each wanted to work and figured out how to, uh, to put it all together. So that uh, after long phone calls, um, long emails, uh, me drafting a few chapters to see how he, how we responded and deciding that, yes, this was, this was, this was, this was going to work. So let's keep going. We started swapping chapters back and forth or sections back and forth. And, and uh, by the end, we were uh, on the phone <laughs> several times every day, uh, swapping scenes back and forth, pages, paragraphs, uh, um, going back and forth over everything. Probably every single word in the novel got hashed over uh, at least once. <laughs> wow. It, it sounds as if it's one of those uh co-writing situations where you would be hard pressed to identify your quote unquote words that they're, they're sort of organically fused. Is that, is that true? Yeah. By the end, I mean, there were definitely sections where, where I, you know, a chapter or two where I, I did the rough draft uh, and, and then Michael uh, revised or vice versa. Uh, so there are, there are sections where we, uh, we each uh, had put our own stamp on it initially, but as you start editing, um, then you, you, you synthesize it into something that we hope is still vivid and recognizably uh, a Michael Mann story, <laughs> recognizably has my imprint on it uh, as well, but that uh, people ask me, so did, who, which of you wrote this? And I it's curious to see people uh, uh, say who they think wrote a particular chapter or section and I'm, uh, they can't tell. <laughs> That's great. Did you two have a, a master plan or an outline or any sort of guiding document for this story? Yes, because this is a, a big book with a big story that, that spans decades and continents. And we did not want to wander aimlessly, uh, across it. And Michael, of course, uh, uh, his writing experience started in television, in commercial television, where you have to have a structure for uh, for an hour long drama, and you'd better know how to make sure you get from uh, the opening scene to the climax that uh, that fulfills the promise that uh, that you set out in the story at the at the beginning. So, we worked very hard on um, on structuring the story. Uh, at least creating the scaffolding so that we could uh, then have some creative freedom when writing scenes uh, or, or sections. And Michael is known as a, um, as a, as a fiend for research and as a very exacting director who has extremely high standards and knows exactly how he wants uh wants things portrayed and will keep working until he gets it done that way in film. And so I knew that I was going to have to, uh, to bring my a game every single minute. What I was delighted to discover is that as a collaborator, as a writing partner, he is extremely generous and open-minded. And when we had like 
Okay, the uh, Macaulay's going to take down uh, a cartel stash house across the border, and it's going to be in uh, the the cartels uh, got an abandoned motel that they're disguising as uh, as uh, as derelict property, and that's really where they where they have all their millions stashed. Uh, but he let me take a crack at uh, at at building out the whole the, the whole score and uh we i mean we worked it back and forth it was his idea i got to take a crack at it and he was very um very flexible about uh letting me exercise uh, my creative license which was absolutely wonderful and a collaborator yeah and when were you able or or when did you if you did bring in other people bring them into the creative process or, or did you two kind of see it all the way to the end and then present it to the editor? Like, how did that work? That was exactly what we did. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we, we wrote the rough draft, sent it to the editor at uh, HarperCollins at William Morrow and uh, then uh, sat back down to, uh, to rewrite. Uh, and uh, the, the, the revision was just as much Michael's uh, determination that uh, he thought we could take it up yet another notch uh, in revision and uh, really uh, hit every point as hard as possible, uh, whether it was an emotional story of uh, of the, the characters with uh, with their families, their lovers, their uh, their friends, or whether it was uh, the action on the on the street. And there is a there is the there is a lot of um, really high octane uh, action uh, that I think viewers of, of Michael Mann films know and love. And there's plenty of that in the book as well. Uh, but uh, getting toward the end and saying, you know, we really have to stick the landing here. We, we, we can, we can, we can raise the bar yet again. And let's, let's really try to, to figure out how high we can make it, how high it needs to be and uh, make sure we get it right. Mm. Was there a time constraint or a hard deadline for it? <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a novel published by a, a big five publisher. Yes, there were deadlines. So <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure if they gave you guys any sort of, uh, you know, wiggle room or buffer space given the nature of the project. <laughs> Well, yeah, we it was tough, and uh, we 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 were pushing the whole way, but uh, we wanted to make sure that the book uh, was above all. Michael always said that we we need to get it right. That's the most important thing is to get it right. Um, we also got it done uh, and out <laughs> on the on the bookshelves now. <laughs> How? Uh... How did you create both the, the physical and then and maybe the mental or even the emotional bandwidth to take on this project? You and Michael both have a lot of things going on. How did you clear the space for this? Well, when uh, I found out that he was interested in writing this novel, I I I did clear the space for this. <laughs> uh, and again, it was this was this uh, really propelled me through COVID in a lot of ways that uh, I wasn't able to to travel. I wasn't able to see my family, my kids, my mom, unfortunately. So I was like all the rest of us across the world. I was at home and this gave me a, a tremendously exciting um, intellectual and creative process and product that I could, uh, that I could try to try to work on. So I, I did, deliberately cleared the space for this, um, uh, in my, in my schedule and, uh, uh, day, night, morning, noon, evening, 4am, uh, believe me that it was, uh, it was, it was riding there and all my, all my thoughts waking and sleeping. You were completely immersed in the project. It sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know anytime I've, I've done any sort of collaboration, I always learn something from the, from the person I'm working with. What are, um, what's a one, one thing, memorable thing, a, a tactic, a strategy, something you learned from Michael in terms of storytelling? When we were revising, especially, uh, he said, <laughs> we, we've got a whole, we've got a huge section we need to, rev we, we need to, uh, we need to work on here. Uh, he took a single sheet of, of paper and divided into four sections. He said, we, we have to be able to, uh, to explain what happens here in, on this piece of paper. 
here's the beginning and here we know the beginning, we know the end. And so uh, let's work back from the end to make sure that, uh, that the beginning is right and sets up everything and pulls the audience along to, uh, to the climax. That's clever. Uh, was that, was that at a scene level, um, an act level? Like what was the scope? That of was that at an sequence? act level, I okay. would say. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, but he said that was the process that he learned when he was, uh, when he was writing the, for uh, Starsky and Hutch. <laughs> that was the first, uh, his first writing credits were for, uh, for cop shows. And uh, he learned how you have to have uh, act breaks because they're going to be commercials uh, inserted. So how do you, how do you make sure that the whole hour flows exactly the way you want it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to give you the opportunity to shine, to shine here. I mean, what do you think is uh, an element of storytelling that you taught Michael in this process? How to uh, how to pace a, a story over a hundred thousand words or one hundred twenty in this case? How to uh, exp- how to um, amplify suspense and tension by using point of view by immersing uh, the readers in a particular character's point of view at any at any moment in the story? Because in a film, you're in the camera's point of view. Uh, and you could, the viewers only get what they can see, um, on the, through the camera on a, in a, in a book, you have more latitude to, uh, to delve into, uh, interior monologue or, a, or a particular character's point of view expressed through their, their reactions to the world. So doing that was, uh, um, I, I think was, uh, something that Michael hadn't, uh, hadn't done before and but you know now he does it because he's uh, extremely intelligent a quick study and a brilliant writer yeah it's often hard to articulate our own processes because we sort of just do them naturally uh but how do you think you approach that that i that idea of pov or or character development what what is your sort of take on that well after writing a number of novels uh myself i've uh, and writing thrillers in particular, where you have to you have to drive the story forward, uh, it is knowing how to balance uh, point of view and a character's reaction um, with the necessary sense of pace and forward uh, motion you need in in a in a thriller, particularly that you want a, a thriller has to be about a big idea and about characters who are. Uh, swept up in it and then drive the story forward and your your readers have to care about the characters so you they need to be compelling they have to be interesting you have to want to they have to be facing huge crises and you know the stakes are massive and you the the you have to bring your audience along so that they they want to find out uh, will they succeed will they fail will they live or die and uh you have to learn how to make sure you're not just indulging in uh, scenes where the characters just reflect on their lives or look back on their childhoods. It's uh, it's how to make sure everything is uh, is balanced in the in the the right way so that the story that any kind of conflict is always driving the story forward, even dialogue. <laughs> Love it. That's great advice. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, so. What's uh, what's new in your world now? So now that you know this this big project, uh, somewhat off your plate. Uh, what's up with Unsub? What are, what are you what are you working on? There is uh, another Unsub book that will be on the way, and now that Heat is out, we'll uh, we'll start uh, looking for the uh, um, making some uh, plans for when that is going to hit the world. And it will be Unsub number four, which is uh, part of my series about. FBI profiler Caitlin Hendricks, who uh, hunts serial predators. And uh, then <laughs> I'm skipping around in delight at the moment <laughs> that he has finally hit shelves and has been received so remarkably and that readers uh, have uh, have gravitated toward it. My other big project, which I've had over the last year, wasn't a writing project, and it is, but it is almost finished, and that is rebuilding my house. That uh, we had a, unfortunately, last summer we had a car fire that uh, set our house on fire and ruined the entire 
the entire thing. And so we were in a rental for the last year while we stripped it down to the studs and started rebuilding. And now we're back, but uh, we uh, are still painting, don't have any mirrors, uh, are getting light bulbs installed. And uh, <laughs> and so that has been, uh, that's been the major thing. But now that we're home, uh, everything seems to be starting to feel right again. Good. That's great to hear. Uh, one last question for you. I uh, asked you about your, your sort of personal things. As far as the industry is concerned or the state of readership or books, uh, what are you excited about in the near future when it comes to writing or publishing? Wow, there are so many new, powerful uh, voices, especially in crime fiction thrillers, that uh, it is a wonderful moment for readers and writers. That, uh, and I would encourage everybody to take a chance, uh, spread their wings as readers and try out uh, new authors that uh, they might not have uh, heard of. I mean, there's a lot of diversity of voices of experience. Um, S.A. Cosby, uh, Amina Akhtar, uh, Sylvia Moreno-Garcia, uh, Stephen Graham Jones. Uh, it's just, uh, there's just a real rich um fountain of wonderful new diverse voices that uh, that are making an impact and uh, stick with your favorites you know there's still so many great authors out there that I love as well as I know so many other writers and readers do they're always they're there and they're still writing top-notch stuff but uh if you if you if you're willing to 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 take a look further down the bookshelf uh, at some of the some of the newer stuff you're gonna you're gonna find something you love and it's wonderful. Just a quick reminder before we talk about Meg's interview that if you need to create professional print books and ebooks easily in an all-in-one book writing software, make sure you check out Atticus. Uh, Atticus has a book editor. It's got a, comes with a word count, goal tracking, and even has cloud storage. And the best part is you can format your book in three steps. So make sure you get on over to atticus.io and check it out if you need a book formatting tool. All right, Meg. Uh, JD, I know I want, I want to start with you because I know that Heat is one of your favorite movies. So let, let's start with you. Uh, original, you know, opening thoughts on, on Meg. Uh, first of all, this is a dream project. Um, I, I got a lot of flashbacks to when I was working on Dracul because I could see the two, you know, her and, and Michael Mann kind of huddling, talking about this thing and not telling a soul that they were working on it. Um, knocking out as much of the book as they possibly could and then handing it off to their agent and, you know, taking it out into the world. And a lot of people going, holy crap, I can't believe this just happened and it's done. You know, they've got this this book in front of them. Um, you know, for those, you know, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, um, you know, two of the greatest actors I think that have ever been on the screen. Uh, the first time they were actually in a scene together was the movie Heat. Um, you know, they both appeared in, in the Godfather movies, um, but, you know, because of different timelines, they never actually appeared in the same scene together. So in this particular movie, they, they did. Um, it's, it's just an all around great, great flick. I mean, Michael Mann is a, a very talented director, but also an extremely talented writer. Um, and he's been working in the industry for a very long time from, I think she had mentioned Starsky and Hutch being his, his beginning. Yeah. So like this, this really dates back, but you know, I remember him from doing things like Miami vice and, and stuff like that. Um, just extremely gritty storytelling, um, very realistic storytelling. Uh, and the two of them together, like it, it, it is perfection. Um, I, I, I don't know who wrote what I didn't even bother to try and figure that out as I was going through the book. Um, it is just a, an absolute thrill ride to, to read. Yeah, that was interesting. It's, uh, I know Jay and I have done collaborative projects in the past where, uh, when we did the book with Joanna and Lindsay, we actually did a contest, right. Where we like told people to guess who was who, who wrote what character, um, and, uh, actually our fellow podcasting friend, Sasha Black won that contest. So shout, shout out to uh, Sasha, but yeah, it was, a was, was the original heat. It was it a book before it was a movie. No. And, and honestly, like when you know, Meg started talking about this, I thought for sure she was going to say that, that Michael wrote a script, um, and she, you know, basically wrote the book based on his screenplay or something along those lines. But that, that sounds like it, that's not what happened. Like they sat down and they, they outlined the book together and, um, no, so Heat was originally a screenplay. Um, that's where Michael Mann tends to, to write. Uh, I don't think he's got any novels out there on his own. Um, it's it's a 
without watching it, it's just a very difficult storyline to explain. For me, the two characters Al Pacino and Robert De Niro play are kind of reversed. Like I feel the actors should have played the other ones. Like Al Pacino should have been the 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 bad guy, and, and Robert De Niro should have been the cop. And I always have a hard time wrapping my head around that. Um, but the the one thing that they did in this that I thought was was really cool is like it's an extremely intricate, complicated book. Um, you know, they're bouncing all over the place in time. Um, Heat, the original movie, basically took place inside of you know, if I had to guess, maybe three days to, to five days or a week or so at, at most. But it was it was linear. There wasn't a whole lot of bouncing around going on there. Um, and this one, they're jumping before that that movie took place. They're going after. They're talking about things that are in between and all over the place. But they end up keeping it. You know, it, they do it in a way where you, it's not confusing which is very difficult to, to do. Um, so I, I thought that was fascinating and I would love to see how they, they actually map that out. Yeah. That, that's kind of what you kind of got. What I was going to ask your opinion on, she talked about a little bit like, uh, the, about the idea of why to make it a book instead of go to a movie first. And, um, which I guess going the other way would be, it would probably be better to go from a book than a movie. But, um, you think that's what I know she talked about it, but just like looking at it logistically, if you're looking at the project, just the fact that you can tell all that story more in a book, you think that's probably what went into it mostly? I think that's part of it. And I, I think it's also because of the amount of time that has gone by. Um, you know, if Michael Mann sat down and wrote out a, a screenplay for Heat right now, you know, in 2022 and put it out there, you know, a, a sequel and basically a prequel to a movie that took place in 1995, that that would be a tough sell, I think, in, in Hollywood. Um, you know, especially right now coming out of COVID, you know, like Bullet Train just came out with Brad Pitt, um, supposed to be this huge giant movie. I think it made like $8 million this past weekend. Um, you know, it got dwarfed by, by um, I, I think it was a cartoon, um, actually. But so, you know, like they, they really don't know what to put out. And like, this is going to be an expensive thing to produce. So I think in a lot of ways, this is proof of concept. You know, let's let's create the book. Let's see if people, you know, still remember the movie for one thing. You know, it's a long time ago. Um, yeah. See if that fan base is there. See if people are buying it. Um, and with the book, they're able to do that. And I think the fact that it debuted at number one on the Times list, you know, the kind of buzz that they're getting, you know, that that's definite proof of concept. What I find really fascinating right now is, you know, like how exactly are they going to do this? You know, because, you know, they've got Val Kilmer, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino as their, their three leads. You know, these aren't exactly no name actors that you can just, you know, swap with somebody else and, and move on. Um, and, you know, they need to tell a story that takes place before 1995 and after, you know, 2000 something, um, they've got to bounce around in time with these particular people. Um, and, you know, obviously they have the technology now to do that. There's a movie called, um, uh, what was it, The Irishman, I think, with um, Robert De Niro and, and Al Pacino. I think it was an HBO movie uh, where they de-aged them. They, they use that technology that you see in a lot of the Marvel movies. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's still, it's not there. You know, like Robert De Niro, they de-aged him down. You know, he was like 30 years old or whatever he was in the movie, um, but he still moved like he was in his 70s. You know, so like it's, it's one of those things like the voice was just a little bit off um so i don't know i don't know how they're going to do it but i think because of the reception that they got on this book i think this movie is definitely going to happen one way or the other you jay i want to give you the opportunity to talk to but uh, jd brought something i wanted to bring up which was uh it's pretty incredible that a what is it 27 year old movie um, it was like, it was popular time, but I think it's probably more of like a cult hit now. Maybe that's, maybe it's not, I don't know, but like the, but to, to write a sequel slash prequel to a 27 year old movie that, you know, again, it's that we're not talking about star Wars or something here. Like, uh, that, that you would think a lot of people may have like forgotten, um, on like a glow on a big scale, like for it to go number one on the New York times, that's pretty incredible. And, and says a lot about the quality of the original film and um, and also about the, you know, these authors writing it. I think that's incredible. Yeah, I was uh, I was struck by just how well elated that Meg was. You could probably hear that in the interview because yeah. I think she had uh, she'd found out the day before that day that they hit number one on the list. Um but dedicated to this, like, you know, um, I, I, I was trying to poke into the process a little bit. And J.D., I know you have some experience with, you know, co-writing with, with people who have a lot of other things going on, like like Mr. Patterson. Uh, you know, what, what kind of pressure was Meg dealing with in, in, in writing with Michael Mann? 
Ooh, that that's tough. Um, you know, because she she writes crime thrillers. I mean, that's the reason why he wanted to pair up with her. Um, you know, Shane Salerno put them together, which I think we should also talk about. Um, but she she's got the writing chops coming in, um, and she's confident. I think that was important. I, I think you know Michael Mann is obviously bringing a certain set of skills to the table. Um, no offense to Liam Neeson, uh, a different set of skills. Um, <laughs> but you know, like he he still needed somebody who could put this down on paper as as a novel. Like I said earlier, I don't think he's actually written a book on his own. He can, you know, tell a crazy complicated story, incredible dialogue. He can do all that in a script, but you know, that's a very different process from putting it down on paper in a novel. Um, and Meg has obviously worked on the other side of that. So the two of them together, I think is what's important. When I work with other authors, I tend to think of it as cooks in a kitchen. Um, and you know, you could have two cooks, you could have three cooks, you could have five. It doesn't really matter as long as you're not all trying to cook the same thing. If you all reach for the eggs at the exact same time, you've got a problem. But if somebody's cooking hash browns while somebody else is cooking eggs and somebody else is cooking bacon, you know, you can you can knock it out and it all comes together just right. So when I work with another author, it's it's basically about trying to figure that out. Who's gonna do what? You know, whose skills are are you know, who's strongest at doing particular things, who's weakest, you know, and, and put figure that out. And once you have that formula together, I think you could sit down and 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 do it. Um, and I think that's where these two, I, I mean, they came at it from very different worlds. And I think that's partly why it worked. So Shane Salerno, I, I just, I re really feel we should mention this. So he's Meg's literary agent. Um, he, he runs a company called the Story Factory. Uh, he also reps uh, Don Winslow, uh, Eric Rickstadt, uh, and a couple others. Uh, he comes out of Hollywood. Um, he wrote uh, Armageddon. Um, I know it was one of his projects, um, Hawaii Five-0, the TV show. He worked on that for quite a bit uh, before he became a literary agent. So he's already got, you know, at least one foot still in that Hollywood camp. So I think that's kind of how this happened. I, I'm guessing that he probably knew Michael Mann. Um, he obviously knows Meg because he, he reps her um, and then brought the, the pieces together. Uh, but he's a powerhouse. We've talked about him before. I mean, the, you know, the, the fact that he is working in both of those worlds, you know, and able to put these kind of things together, you know, at a time when the publishing industry is, you know, kind of standing on a little bit of a cliff. Um, that's, that says a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, just an incredible project. Um, it was thrilled. It was great to have Meg back on the show and congrats again on a New York times, number one bestseller. Uh, I think that's, that's really incredible. And hopefully Meg will come back uh, and talk to us when the next unsub book comes out. Cause it sounds like she is, uh, working on that one next. Yeah. Right after heat three. <laughs> Heat three, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who do we got coming on the show next week, JD? Uh, oh, next week, this is going to be another fun one. We've got New York Times bestseller Anthony Horowitz coming on. He's going to talk about his latest thriller, which is called With a Mind to Kill, um, which is set in the James Bond universe. Um, so if you're curious what it takes to write in the James Bond world, you know, as part of that franchise, you definitely don't want to miss this one. Cool. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.